a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers gather on a uh, semi-regular basis. Okay, most weekdays. To get a feel for what's happening in the world. Not to immerse ourselves in doom and gloom. and Not to march in lockstep. But simply to get an assessment of what is happening. To see the world as it is and then to look closely to see how you and I might change it through our efforts. I know it sounds like a lofty goal, and I don't want to make it sound like, you know, we're out to overthrow the world and replace it with something else. So, Though uh, I think the people who are doing the heavy lifting on this are probably doing simple things that don't make a lot of headlines. Raising good, productive kids, you know, who grow up to be solid people. That's, uh, that's probably a very overlooked contribution to the overall benefit of everybody. Nonetheless, for whatever reason you are here, I'm glad you're part of our audience. Our show is made possible by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, HSLAmmo.com, the Sewing and Quilting Center, and also GovernYourIncome.com. I want to start today by, well, pushing back on how some people are considered a menace by certain members of society. This is particularly true of uh, whenever I hear someone referred to as a menace by authoritarian means or authoritarian. Uh, let me try that again. Authoritative. That was a very unfortunate Freudian slip there. Authoritative mainstream sources. When they call somebody a menace, <clears throat> to me, that's a very strong indication that the individual in question is probably someone doing an excellent job of challenging the official narrative the one that we are supposed to believe without question or hesitation. Got a great article here from Jordan Schachtel. This is from his dossier Substack, And it's a marvelous effort to take apart mainstream media claims that 270 doctors have petitioned Spotify to deplatform Joe Rogan. Now, here's the rub. Yes, it's true. 270 individuals claiming to be doctors have definitely signed a letter, but the vast majority of those signatories are not medical doctors. Just a handful are practicing physicians. You have some PhDs, but it's just one of those interesting little twists of truth, or twisting of the truth, that makes me think, maybe I should be paying closer attention to either what Joe Rogan is saying, or probably more likely to what his guests are saying. I mean, not to not to put too fine a point on it, but CNN in its most prime time show can boast about eight hundred thousand viewers. That's not chump change. That's a lot of people that are tuned in. And CNN, I think we can safely say, is well within the mainstream of what an acceptable opinion is, you know, in our day and age. But that eight hundred thousand viewers is. Pretty small beans compared to Joe Rogan's 11 million listeners per episode of his podcast. That's a big difference. I'm not going to crunch the numbers, but someone who's a mathematician, tell me what the difference is percentage-wise between those. 
well. No wonder he's a menace to public health in some people's eyes. It's because people are actually listening to what Joe Rogan is doing. And it's, this is not to suggest in any way that, oh, he has all the answers. Yes, he is the one who will save us. He is uh, he's just somebody who seems very genuinely interested in hearing what people have to say. That doesn't necessarily mean he agrees or endorses it. He asks hard questions, but he lets them speak freely. He allows his audience to think freely instead of dictating to them like a puppy that just piddled on the carpet and is, you know, getting whacked on the nose with a rolled up newspaper. No, you'll have to believe this. Jordan Schachtel says, are you seeing all those blaring corporate press headlines targeting Joe Rogan this weekend? Reporting on a letter from 270 doctors, which described the famous podcaster as a menace to public health. Well, it turns out that the real arbiters of misinformation are the individuals behind the letter itself. And they're being helped along the way by a corporate media, corrupt corporate media, that's misreporting the credentials of its signatories. Now, this was first reported by Rolling Stone with a story titled, Doctors Demand Spotify Puts an End to COVID Lies on Joe Rogan Experience. <clears throat> yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty bold. And he links to an article from The Guardian, Menace to Health, 270 doctors criticize Spotify over Joe Rogan's podcast. An open letter expresses concern about COVID misinformation and specifically addresses an episode with virologist Robert Malone. Salon followed up with, the, with their publication. Doctors urged Spotify to stop enabling Joe Rogan to damage public trust in scientific research. Oh, wow. How dare we doubt the scientism? The subheadline here, Spotify is responsible for allowing COVID misinformation to thrive on its platform. The letter reads, Yes, Jordan Schachtel says the media and big tech want to create the image of a hundred-strong coalition of medical doctors who are genuinely concerned about Joe Rogan's conversations on his massive platform. Now, Twitter even got in on the propaganda campaign against Rogan, adding this medical experts letter to their curated headline section. More than 270 medical experts call out Spotify and Joe Rogan for spreading COVID-19 misinformation. Well, Jordan Schachtel says, I reviewed this open letter, and it turns out that only around 100 of the 270-plus signatories to the letter are people with qualified medical degrees. And a large chunk of that 100 or so medical doctors are MDs employed at universities who are, in fact, not practitioners of medicine. Yet part of the letter reads, As physicians, we bear the arduous weight of a pandemic that has stretched our medical systems to their limits, it only stands to be exacerbated by the anti-vaccination sentiment woven into this and other episodes of Rogan's podcast. End quote. Now, Schachtel says, paradoxically, the disseminators of this petition are guilty of the very misinformation label they've attached to Rogan. In fact, neither of the two reported co-authors of the letter, Jessica Riviera, Rivera rather, and Ben Ryan, possess medical degrees. Rivera holds a master's degree. Ryan is a Ph.D. academic who researches psychiatry. Now, this letter denouncing Joe Rogan and pressuring Spotify to censor his speech has all kinds of random signatories. He says, by my count, the letter is signed by over 50, <clears throat> excuse me, Ph.D. academics, around 60 college professors, 29 nurses, 10 students, 4 medical residents, and even a handful of 
science podcasters. The letter, which uses the word misinformation nine times in five paragraphs, concludes with a call for Spotify to censor Rogan as part of a policy to moderate misinformation on the platform. Now, Jordan Schachtel says notably, there is no information on who or what group is behind the creation and circulation of the open letter. Rivera, the reported lead author of the letter, is associated with the far-left Rockefeller Foundation and The Atlantic, and she is a CNN contributor. I don't know. Maybe it would be worth your time. In fact, I would recommend read the letter. It's linked in in the article by uh, Jordan Schachtel. But I want you to ask yourself as you're reading this, why is it so important that these, you know, 270 individuals step forward and, and demand, we cannot allow Joe Rogan to interview people who say things that are inconvenient to what we think, what they think, I should say. Why would they want to silence him? Why would they not just instead mount an effort to bring the truth forward with people who could counter it? You know, use persuasion, use their own truth, use the, the, the actual facts to make their case. Now, again, I'm no medical expert here. But I'm pretty good at uh, sorting through things logically and logically, it makes sense to me. The only reason you want to shut somebody up, the only reason you want to deplatform someone, I don't want to hear from them anymore, is because you cannot refute the information that's coming out via Rogan's platform. By the way, I believe uh, Rogan's got about 16,000 doctors that are, are on his side. I don't know if they're all medical doctors or not, but... You know, it's, it's not just a popularity contest. The principle here is the, the idea that truth is so fragile and it's so delicate that it has to be protected by acts of censorship. And even if it's not government that's doing the censorship, but just simply people asserting, well, because I have authority or because I am an authority in this area, you should heed what I say and uh, cut this man's tongue out, so to speak. It's not because they're right. It's because they're afraid that what he's saying is going to make sense to a lot of people. And guess what? It is making sense to a lot of people. The official narrative is in big trouble. Speaking of the official narrative, when we come back, we're going to take a a look at an alternative. What could have been if not for the lockdowns? Jeffrey A. Tucker from the Brownstone Institute has some very interesting ideas. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to give a quick mention here to lifesavingfood.com. I don't know if you've noticed. If you've been to the grocery store, you have to have noticed. You have probably noticed groceries and gas are two of the uh, most inflated items over the last couple of years. And I'm not telling you this to scare you, but I do want you to understand the reality is food prices are going up. Food, the cost of producing food, the fuel for the farmers, the fertilizer and everything that goes into creating and growing and producing that food, that's all getting more expensive too. So I, I, I'm not telling you this to scare you, although it's, that's a very daunting thought, isn't it? Be prepared. 
have some stores set aside so that if it becomes prohibitively expensive, if there are shortages or just out-and-out food isn't available in the quantities that it once was, you still have something you can fall back on. Click on the link I provide in my show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, lifesavingfood.com. Oh, by the way, Kendall has told me he's kicking up the discount to 20%. You purchase through him, you'll get a 20% discount, free shipping, and no sales tax. Now, that is a pretty sweet deal. You know, when it comes to assessing the astonishing damage done by COVID lockdowns, the question we're going to be asking ourselves for generations to come is what might have been. Jeffrey Tucker writing for the Brownstone Institute, breaks down the timeline and tells us where it all went horribly wrong. He says, we'll be putting together the timeline for this disaster for many years to come. It all comes down to those fatal days between January and March 2020, from the news out of China to the lockdowns in northern Italy to the lockdowns in the U.S. Now, he says the documented and admitted record is clear, and this is the source of scandal in his view. Top public health officials in the U.S., U.K., and Australia spent the good part of six weeks obsessing over whether the virus was a lab leak, accidental, or deliberate, and therefore what the political spin should be if it turned out to be true. Well, something almost certainly happened to change the script in the week of February. On February 25th, 2020, Anthony Fauci wisely told CBS News the following, You cannot avoid having infections since you cannot shut off the country from the rest of the world. Do not let the fear of the unknown distort your evaluation of the risk of the pandemic to you relative to the risks you face every day. Do not yield to unreasonable fear. Can you believe that was Dr. Fauci that actually wrote those words? But the next day, Jeffrey Tucker writes, something shifted. Fauci wrote an email to actress Morgan Fairchild that reads as follows. Thanks for the note and the offer to help. It would be great if you could tweet to your many Twitter followers that although the current risk of coronavirus to the American public is low, the fact is there is commu- the fact that there is community spread of virus in a number of countries besides China poses a risk that we may progress to a global pandemic of COVID-19. And so, for that reason, the American public should not be frightened but should be prepared to mitigate an outbreak in this country by measures that include social distancing, teleworking, temporary closure of schools, etc. There is nothing to be done right now since there are so few cases in this country. And Jeffrey Tucker offers a little editor's note here. There's no way he could have known this. Fauci goes on to say, and these cases are being properly isolated, so go about your daily business. However, be aware that behavioral adjustments may need to be made if a pandemic occurs. And suddenly, lockdowns were on the table. And we know what happened next. Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burks worked over the coming weeks to warm Trump up to the idea, culminating in the March 16th, 2020 press conference announcing lockdowns to the nation. Now, two weeks earlier, from March 3rd of 2020 at least, we had very good reports of the evidence out of China concerning the risk profiles of people who were vulnerable to the virus. This is a news report that says the new coronavirus is not an equal opportunity killer. Being elderly and having other illnesses, for instance, greatly increases the risk of dying from the disease the virus causes, COVID-19. It's also possible being male could put you at increased risk. 
For both medical and public health reasons, researchers want to figure out who's most at risk of being infected and who's most at risk of developing severe or even lethal illness. With that kind of information, clinicians would know whom to treat more aggressively, government officials would have a better idea of steps to take, and everyone would know whether they need to take special additional precautions. Elderly patients were more likely to develop ARDS, the researchers wrote, suggesting how age can make COVID-19 more severe and even fatal. Age increases the risk that the respiratory system will basically shut down under viral assault. Youth, in contrast, seem to be protective. The World Health Organization mission reported a relatively low incidence in people under 18 who made up only 2.4% of all reported cases. In fact, through mid-January, zero children in Wuhan, the epicenter of the outbreak, had contracted COVID-19. It's not clear whether that's because children do not show signs of illness, because children do not show signs of illness even if infected. Even cases among children and teens ages 10 to 19 are, are rare. As of February 11th, there were 549 cases in that age group, 1.2% of the total, China's CDC found. Only one had died. Now, again, this is an article that ran on March 6th of 2020. And Jeffrey Tucker says everyone on planet Earth knew this two weeks before the lockdowns. And he says, so far as I know, the data hasn't changed that much since. We knew that elderly people with health problems were the vulnerable population. We knew for sure that young people were not. We also knew that adults would struggle with this virus and would need care. So it's not too much of a stretch, nor does it take a great deal of topical specialization to imagine the outlines of a good public health response. Inform the public of what is coming or what's already here. Alert vulnerable populations to stay away from environments where infection is likely to occur. Calm down young people and keep their lives functioning as normal. Get to work examining the best possible therapeutics for dealing with the sick among which would surely include repurposed drugs that have had success in the past in dealing with such infections. Otherwise, we could have done exactly what Dr. Fauci said we should do on February 25th. Namely, do not let the fear of the unknown distort your evaluation of the risk of the pandemic to you relative to the risks that you face every day. Do not yield to unreasonable fear. So protect the old, let the young live their lives, research on the best means of treatment, minimizing fatalities on the road to endemicity. In other words, the Great Barrington Declaration. Jeffrey Tucker says it's not rocket science, nor is it the clarity that only hindsight provides. This kind of response is precisely what prevailing information would have dictated to anyone. But instead... All hell broke loose with wild experimental lockdowns that seemed designed for the whole population to avoid the virus. Well, not the whole population, but the professional Zoom class in particular, while essential workers exposed themselves to the disease. Other outrages included especially exposing elderly people rather than protecting them. Schools were closed, the medical system locked down. In other words, the policy response was the very opposite of what public health would have recommended. And as a result, the public was at a loss to the real risks. Elderly people underestimated their risk, while younger people overestimated it, and by huge amounts. Young people even today are surprised by their mild symptoms, while people in their 50s or, or older are stunned to find themselves under the weather for weeks at a time. 
After two years, when the Zoom class is finally meeting the virus, they're rather amazed to discover its symptoms and treatments. And that's just remarkable and a reflection of how the policy response never accounted for the disparity of risk, but rather pursued a population-wide strategy that protected no one except the professional class for as long as possible. Now, I've only scratched the surface of Jeffrey Tucker's article from the Brownstone Institute, but you will find it linked in the show notes, and I strongly recommend take a look at it for yourself and see if it doesn't add up. By the way, it's okay if you disagree. Not that you need my permission, but you are free to disagree at any time. I'm just going to put this information out there for your consideration. What you do with it, that is entirely up to you. When we come back, we'll be visiting with Grayson Quay. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Just like that, we are back. I want to welcome my friend Grayson Quay to the show. He is a writer. At least that's that's how I know Grayson. I follow him on Twitter and I read many of his columns. But uh, Grayson, you also wear a few other hats. So for people who are meeting you for the very first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I live in the Washington, D.C. area. As you said, I'm a writer. I write a weekly column at The Spectator World. And I also just took an editorial position at a publication called The Week, uh, so you can read some of my more kind of straight news writing there. Um, my opinion writing is more so over at The Spectator and in other outlets. So I, I don't want to make this sound like I just I asked you to be on the show here so I could throw many rays of sunshine at you. But I want you to know you are one of the trusted voices that I go to. And there there aren't that many voices out there that I really give a lot of credibility. But I, I like your grounding in principle. Um, you you are very, I think, dialed into what is happening culturally, and I think that you correctly see what happens to the culture um, tends to, to go through the entirety of society. So I appreciate your take, not only because you're keeping aware of what's happening, but I, I really appreciate how principled your take is. And and you're less concerned about partisan considerations than, than you know, is this right or is this wrong? That's refreshing. There's a lot of people who don't. I saw that you had mentioned something on Twitter recently about the uh, Republican National Committee is considering telling presidential candidates they will not be participating in uh, the traditional presidential debates. Walk me through that a little bit. And and why is that? uh, Why why are they looking at at not participating in this? So I imagine they're not looking at participating um, just because uh, of how badly it all went last time around. you know, I know people, even even diehard Trump supporters who watched that first debate and were just, you know, putting their burying their heads in their hands and thinking, oh, gosh, what is he doing? Um, so I think that's an issue. I think I think the Republican committee has gotten to the point where they've realized that uh, they have more to lose than to gain through these debates, um, you know, especially with most of the mainstream media outlets kind of taking a, a more critical, if not hostile view toward the Republican candidate in those in those kinds of venues. Uh, so I can understand why they're pulling out. Um, I think it's good that we have presidential debates, but I wish they were better. Okay. I got to ask you this and I'm just, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Do they really accomplish anything though? I mean, come on professional wrestling. At least there's kind of a storyline to it, but the presidential debates to me, there's a lot of posturing, but in the end, I don't know that anything really gets solved. 
Yeah, I do. I do think I enjoy watching them in the same sense that people enjoy watching professional wrestling. Right. Fair I enough. don't think there's a whole lot of uh, substantive stuff there. If you're, you know, if you work as a, uh, you know, if you work in political journalism like I do, and politics is kind of your sports, then I can see why it's fun to to watch it. In my younger, wilder days, my friends and I actually made a drinking game out of one of the debates. But just, uh, just somebody got alcohol poisoning? No, I'm I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it just we did I, have I'm, to change. A- rules on the fly. <laughs> I'm, I'm just suggesting the, the debates are kind of predictable in the sense that there, there are certain talking points that it seems they're, they're allowed to talk on, but there are some things I, I learn more by, well, what aren't they discussing? You know, for instance, why aren't they discussing, your, you know, in the last couple of presidential elections, why aren't they discussing, you know, the inflation of the money supply and things like that? Somehow that's always off the table, but yeah, no, I think I agree with you. Substantively, they're not they're not terribly useful. Um, I think they they just kind of turn into popularity contests, attempts to get the most the most zingers and sound bites in. Yeah, I think you're I think you're correct about that. Okay, so let me ask you this: Is does this undermine confidence in the election system? Not that there's anything that would undermine it, our confidence in it, but. Um, I, I'm curious if if the Republicans saying, "Look, we don't even want to participate in that." If that's indicative that uh, maybe maybe they just feel like it's it's not worth the effort. Confidence, I think, is pretty low to begin with, and I think one of the issues is that as a presidential candidate, you never really have to try to make a pitch for yourself in any kind of long form format. Um, you know, if you are the British prime minister, you have to go to parliament and submit to question time and you have to be quick on your toes. I mean, that's that's fun to watch because they they have to get hard questions from the opposition and they have to, um, you know, they have to respond to those. And you often get these wonderful, very British witty exchanges out of that. But, you know, pre- the president being head of government and head of state uh, in Britain, that's the queen, obviously, um, kind of, I guess it's beneath his dignity to submit to such a thing, I suppose. Um but yeah, I agree with you that it's it's undermining confidence, and I think that it's really bad that candidates never have to make a long-form case for themselves. And I think you could see this on both sides to a degree in the 2020 presidential election. Biden spent the entire election hiding in his basement right? Um, because you know they knew that if he ever had to speak at length, he would say something incredibly ridiculous. And then Trump, I don't think, has particularly covered himself in glory anytime he's had to make any kind of long form pitch for himself either. Um, you know, I remember the, there was an interview he did with Axios in the weeks leading up to the election where it just really seemed like he was rambling and not being particularly coherent. I mean, there's a lot of pressure on any one of them. I, I wouldn't, I don't yep. envy them. I wouldn't want to take their place, but um, I, I have some, I have some serious doubts about uh how much of it is melodrama and how much of it, you know, really is the most important story of the day. I do agree with you, by the way, and I think it's an astute observation. There is a sporting element, and, and uh, probably I've had more enjoyment out of watching uh, Senator Rand Paul questioning Dr. Fauci than, uh, than any football game I've watched within recent memory. I mean, that, was, they were, that thing was getting sporty. Talk, uh, yeah. talk to me about Joe Rogan. I'd like to, I'd like to get your take on, uh, is, is he shaking things up as it appears that he may be? His, his audience sure seems to outpace a lot of the you know, legacy media. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think he has, I mean, he has a larger audience than, than CNN by far, I think at this point. And I also think there's a degree to which people tell you who they're afraid of by who they go after. And they're going after Joe Rogan incredibly hard. I think just uh, today I saw a story where dozens, if not, you know, 
a couple hundred uh, healthcare professionals signed a letter asking Spotify to deplatform him because of the interviews he recently did with a, a pair of uh, um, medical experts who are kind of questioning some of the narratives around COVID. Yeah, um, now, and these were incredibly accomplished people. Have you, I was just curious have you have you listened to uh, Peter McCullough or or uh, uh, Dr. Robert Malone? Have you heard those interviews that Rogan did? Uh, I started one of them. Uh, uh, which one is it? Who's the the mRNA researcher? Who that's that's of, Malone. That's Malone. I started yeah. listening to that one. I'm probably about half an hour into it, but yeah, okay. it was really, really good stuff. Yeah, I I'm not saying that uh, these guys walk on water and every word they say, you know, you you have to hang your hat on. But man, um, th- that's that's some of the first serious questioning of you know the the official narrative that I've seen from someone who really seems to have the the bona fides you know, to, to be able to ask and, and answer those kinds of questions. Yeah. And I think you're in a, you're in a very weird and dangerous position when you're trying to deplatform this person rather than just, uh, you know, disprove what they're saying. Um, you know, for a long time, we had this idea that there's a marketplace of ideas and that's the beautiful thing about American society. You can listen to all the best arguments and decide. And now, you know, you hear this term misinformation or disinformation all the time. And this idea that, People need to be shielded from it or no, don't do your own research. That's that'll lead you astray. You have to listen to these particular experts and these particular technocrats. Um, And I do think it's good that Joe Rogan's shaking things up. I think he's had people on his show that are a little kooky, certainly at times. But, um, you know, he's he's, obviously he's had Alex Jones on. um, Right. You know, he's had people with some pretty weird uh, theories about. uh, Ancient history and and aliens and stuff. Dan Aykroyd thinks that he's had. marital relations with ghosts and talked about that at length on the show. Uh, but you know, it's, it's always interesting and it's always entertaining. He's a very good interviewer. Wow. I, sorry, the Dan Aykroyd thing, who are you going to call? <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> no, um, this, one of the things though, that, uh, that I do appreciate about you and, and when, when you're putting the information out there, I, I really get a sense that uh, you're trying to put more light than simply heat into to what you're saying. And I hope that makes sense. But um, that's kind of, for me, this is the determining factor when I'm looking for sources of information. The ones that I find myself returning to that seem to bring more value to my life are the ones that actually have some light to offer as opposed to, uh, well, I'm here to make you angry or make you fearful about this person or that thing. What are, uh, what are some of your resources that, that you like to turn to, to to just have a good idea of what's going on? Well, I mean, there's a great uh, there's a great stable of writers over at the Spectator World where I like to write. Um, the American Conservatives doing some good work. Um, yeah, the, those are those are a pair of good sources. Certainly, obviously, uh, you know, National Review has been around for a long time. They're doing great work. Um, and then, you know, it's, there's also just the the question of kind of finding. Uh, if you're on Twitter, you can sort of curate an environment for yourself that represents a broad variety of viewpoints but also has a mix of kind of legacy outlets and just sort of maybe idiosyncratic individual voices yeah it's it takes a little bit of effort to to get your twitter feed tuned into where it's it's not upsetting but but actually more enlightening but do you mind if i talk a little bit more about joe rogan i um yeah let's come back to that let's let's come back to that i've got to take a real quick time out here so we will uh we will fire off the music here grayson quay is my guest And we will be back in just a few moments here on the show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. My friend Grayson Quay is here. And uh, Grayson, we were going to talk a little bit more about uh, Joe Rogan, who seems to be uh, gaining in popularity now. Um, if, if for no other reason, it's just uh, he's an alternative to, I guess, what, the the approved narrative managers? Well, I remember during the 2020 election, he actually offered to host a presidential debate. And the 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 possibility was never really there, I don't think. But it was just fascinating to think about as, as, you know, a possibility in some alternative universe, maybe, where he said he wanted to have both candidates come into his studio and, you know, sit down, kind of have an informal environment, and he would just ask them both questions, and they would have a long-form conversation, and, and voters would get to know them and their platforms and their policy proposals and their vision and everything. And on one hand, it reminded me, sometimes I'll do this to kind of detox after I watch a particularly bad and shallow political <laughs> debate between candidates is I'll pull up YouTube and I encourage your listeners to do this as well. I'll pull up YouTube and watch the uh, Nixon Kennedy debate from the 1960 election, the first televised debate. And it is so boring and it's incredibly refreshing. Um, you know, they spend probably 10 or 15 minutes arguing back and forth about, um, well, the economy's doing well, but you know, I think we should, uh, reduce this marginal tax rate by 2%. And Kennedy goes, no, we need to in- increase the marginal tax rate by 3%. And this is like their big, you know, clash point. And, but it's, it's all very, you know, policy oriented. Um, there's not really any ad hominem going on. Nobody's talking over each other. And you really get a feel for like, okay, here's how this candidate wants to run the country. And here's how this candidate wants to run the country. And I think you, I think, probably the closest we could get to that in our, you know, modern uh, kind of hyper stimulated uh, media environment would be Joe Rogan. I think there's a hunger for this long form, in-depth, more substantive stuff. I think that the, you know, primetime cable political debate is an outdated uh, medium. Well, and the idea that uh, there exists a very comprehensive bureaucracy of people whose job is to uh, protect us, you know, just to fact check, in quotes, you know, um, the things that we're, that we're able to see and the things that we can't, just can't handle. And, and that offends me. And I guess the thing I, I love about Joe, Joe Rogan is um, what makes his show a draw is the fact that it is. It's unfiltered. And sometimes, I mean, he's dropping mm-hmm. F-bombs. He's smoking pot, you know, while he's interviewing people. <laughs> and for some people, that would be like, oh, what a breach of, you know, of uh, manners, but I'll take the breach in manners for unfiltered conversation that lets me make up my own mind anytime. Yeah, this is Joe Rogan is also interesting to me as just kind of a case study where if you read left leaning left leaning media, you get this view of Joe Rogan as this extreme right, um, you know, this extreme right white nationalist alt right bigoted figure, and. If you're placing Joe Rogan on the extreme right, you're making a very serious error in how you're diagnosing the political climate in this country. Joe Rogan is not extreme right. Joe Rogan is incredibly representative, I think, of the median, at least male voter in this country. Yeah. Um, well, someone who's, yeah, someone who's fairly agnostic on economic policy because it's just not their area of expertise. He clearly admires entrepreneurship. He has a lot of people on who are entrepreneurs and speaks very highly of them, but is also skeptical of big corporations. 
um, you know, someone who is socially maybe slightly left of center, um, you know, doesn't want to ban no-fault divorce or, you know, or outlaw pornography or something, but is a little weirded out by the idea of putting, uh, you know, 12-year-olds on hormone blockers um, and isn't a huge fan of, uh, you know, transgender uh, male-to-female MMA fighters beating the hell out of their opponents. Um, so it's, you know, he's, and, and is open-minded, right? Like the, the average, uh, you know, the average writer for one of these publications who thinks that Joe Rogan is the devil probably wouldn't sit down and have a conversation with Ben Shapiro, but the average male, you know, median voter in the country probably has friends who are more like Ben Shapiro and friends who are, you know, more like Bernie Sanders and probably gets along pretty well with both of them. I think the the thing that in my mind gives Joe Rogan the edge over so many other, you know, commentators, hosts out there is he's not an ideologue. And, and ben, no. Sh- ben Shapiro's talented, but he's he's an ideologue, you know, or at least he comes off as, you know, more more of a, an ideologue. Um Rogan seems okay with uh, if if you don't line up with him, that's not a disqualifying factor from well then I can never respect you, I can't talk to you, you can't be my friend. I think he sincerely wants to know what people are thinking, wants to understand where they're coming from. And it just doesn't seem like there's that many, you know, hosts out there, particularly again in the heritage media, um, conservative or liberal that that would fit that bill. Yeah. And the and I think the the liberal um, you know, or progressive mainstream narrative makes this kind of error in in judgment or error in classification all the time. Joe Rogan's forty million followers can't all be Nazis. You know, the um, the millions and millions of people, record numbers of people who voted for Trump in the 2020 election are not can't all be Nazis. Um, you know, the I remember even seeing this when the movie Joker came out a few years ago. It made nine hundred million dollars. And the narrative around this was all like, oh, everyone going to see this movie is a, an angry um, incel. Right. Wow. Uh, <laughs> it, it, you if your if your solution to things not going your way sometimes is just to write off half of the country as Nazis, you're making a very serious error, and you're going to pay for it. In, in I, I don't mean that as like a threat. I mean you're going to pay for it because you're looking at reality in a skewed way, and you can't you can't run a, a country that way. You can't at, you can't accurately craft policy that way. You can't accurately run political campaigns that way. It's it's just. Not true. Yet it seems that the divide that we see today, um, I mean, it it is a divide in reality. And and um, I, I'm not trying to sound condescending, and, and I hope it doesn't come off as well, you know, because clearly where I'm seeing everything is as, as clearly and based in reality as possible. There, about half the country does think that the other half is insane and, and vice mm-hmm. versa. I, I mean, I try not to bring more anger into a discussion or, or more fear into a discussion, but it's hard to talk to people when you're coming from not just different vantage points, but when, when both of you are approaching it from what feels like different realities. Mm-hmm. No, it is certainly very difficult. Um, I know on the, you know, my sense was on the left, uh, kind of right after Trump won, there was a very brief moment. Um, this is sort of where J.D. Vance's uh, Hillbilly Elegy memoir got popular of, oh, well, what what drove these people to do it? Is this kind of, you know, the forgotten white working class in, in the Rust Belt and so on? And then it seemed like that lasted two weeks. And then it was like, nope, they're all Nazis, right? Um, 
you even and kind of anyone who questions that narrative gets pushed back even from the left. I remember when Bernie Sanders was running for the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020. He went to do an interview with the New York Times editorial board and they asked him, well, what do you think explains the appeal of Trump? And he basically said that, that there's huge numbers of working class, predominantly white people in this country who feel as though they've been left behind. And look, I'm from there. I'm from a, a hollowed out former steel town in Western Pennsylvania where the population's dropped by half since the 80s. It wow. used to be you could have a good union job at the mill and support your family on one income. And now, you know, everyone, uh, you know, now most of the kids who have potential move away to make spreadsheets in a couple big cities. And, you know, the people who are left for a long time were just dying of, of fentanyl overdoses. Thankfully, that's tapered off and gotten back under control more. But you know, Bernie Sanders kind of made that pitch, and one of the one of the people on the editorial board went, "Oh, so that explains the appeal of racism?" Oh and my went, goodness! Oh my goodness! This is why. This is your problem. You can't just call people racist until they agree with you. I mean, that's what we just saw in Biden's voting rights speech. Oh my goodness! You know, if you don't agree with me, you're Jefferson Davis, you're Bull Connor, right? <laughs> Well, okay, we're, we've got about a minute here before we got to wrap things up. I want to direct people to where they can read what you have to say about things going on. You've always got some thought-provoking columns and, and commentaries out there. Where's the best place to find them? Sure. So I have a website I maintain that's just graysonquay.com. That's G-R-A-Y-S-O-N-Q-U-A-Y. Uh, I have links to all my author pages there. Um, also, if you just Google my name, you'll find stuff. Uh, or if you Google my name along with The Spectator World, uh, that's where you'll find my most recent writing. Okay. Yeah, it's this is fantastic work. And uh, again, I'm, I'm grateful to have, have come across your writings. Um, there, there are a lot of different voices that I try to follow because I do try to you know keep a pretty broad point of view. But I have found yours to be uh, one of the, the brighter you know sources of light out there. So I, I commend you for, for doing what you're doing. Um, you feeling optimistic for this year or is this, uh, are, are you feeling like uh, we've, we've got some bumpy road ahead? I feel good, honestly. I mean, things, things are very much in a state of flux, so it could go in a variety of directions, I think. Um, I think the, uh, I think the White House, I think the, uh, I think the Republicans are going to take back the House. I think the White House at this point, at least is ours to lose in 24. And I'm feeling pretty good about a certain Supreme Court ruling coming down the pipe in June. So Okay. And actually, you and I are going to be talking, hopefully, between now and then. I'd, I'd like to, to get your take on some other current events. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Come, pull up a chair, find courage, find camaraderie, find a sense of purpose in living your life. Because you're not just some pet, you're not just some kind of human cattle to be ordered around by people who know better than you. No, I think you and I each have uh, have a destiny to fulfill. Now, if that sounds inflated or it sounds delusional, I'm sorry. 
but I believe that every one of us has been placed on this earth to carry out some kind of personal purpose, some kind of personal mission. And if that's an idea that resonates with you, then I think you're going to find a lot to think about in this hour of the show. I have some great sponsors who make the program possible. Let me uh, give a quick tip of the hat to them. They include GovernYourIncome.com, quilt, uh, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, also the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. I think a lot of us have learned a lot about ourselves in the last couple of years. Maybe you've learned a lot about the people around you. I've... There, there have been some painful lessons that, that I've learned as well. And we've definitely had plenty of opportunity to look around us and see who is willing to stand for his or her beliefs. Now, some of those lessons have not been easy ones. But I have been, uh, I've been very encouraged by what I've seen from people who um, have, have been willing to step up and make a difference. I'm going to, in fact, I'm going to name names here. At least I'm going to throw one name out there. Eric Mutzos. He and I have been friends for about six years now. And I, I admire this guy because he, he came onto my radar screen as someone who was willing to stand up for his beliefs, actually ended up losing his job as a motorcycle police officer in Salt Lake City uh, because he did not want to perform motorcycle, synchronized motorcycle uh, riding stunts in the uh, gay pride parade that takes place every June in Salt Lake City. And he offered to trade, you know, assignments with another officer, saying, look, I'm happy to provide security. I just don't want to perform in the parade. That seems to me like I would be lending my endorsement to activities that I really don't endorse. So as a matter of conscience, he made that switch, and, man, they treated him like, well, he is biased, he is hateful, and they drummed him out of the Salt Lake Police Department, which it turns out actually was a good thing for him because he has become one of the most fearless crusaders of truth that I have, have come to know. And he has definitely led out over the last couple of years against some of the COVID lockdown madness. So, Eric, I know you're blushing if you're hearing this, but um, it's really a good idea to look to people who have found the courage to stand on their feet. And as Alan Stevo advises, separate yourself from the ones lacking courage and group yourself with those who are courageous. Here's how he puts it. He says, it's been said a bad apple ruins the barrel. When putrefaction spreads, sometimes it gets the healthy tissue too. Now the Bible advises repeatedly to separate yourselves from those who are not of high standards. And it says this in many different ways. Separation seems to be so important that it even advises death, the ultimate separation of a person from society, for any number of aberrations from, upstand, from upstanding behavior. Now, he offers some clarification here, because there's going to be some knee-jerk reactions. Do I suggest going around killing people? No. But he says to separate yourself from those who are not to your standards makes a whole lot of sense at this stage in the trajectory of corona communism. Now, I realize some people might point out, now, Brian, Jesus went to the lepers, he went to the unclean, the prostitutes, the, the sinners. Okay, well, we're, we're talking a couple of different things here. If you are out there trying to win souls for Jesus, absolutely. Go to where, you know, his, his influence is needed. Now, if we're talking about 
simply living your life and trying to be a beacon of freedom in an increasingly unfree society? I think Alan Stevo's got the right idea here. Don't hang around with people who essentially are vampires that will suck all of your enthusiasm and all of your energy from you for reasons that, that keep you further and further from your liberty. Stevo says the Bible an uncountable number of times references people who are set apart rather than people who are not set apart. Now he says, sure, I've encountered a few cowardly readers of these pages in which I'm writing, but the overwhelmingly courageous lions come to this place. In fact, he says, if you are reading this, there's a good chance that you are one set apart. And it may be time to start treating yourself like that. You are not a social pariah, no matter what others may believe. Some others may believe. You are not a second-class citizen, no matter what some others may claim. You are the foundation upon which a new America will be built. The word I like to use is, you're part of the remnant. Alan Stevo says, stop accepting the negative narrative from those who want to demoralize you. Stop letting those who are not set apart from speaking into your life. Stop letting the dribbles of discouragement fall upon your ears, your mind, your heart, your soul. Now, he points out this discouragement could come from friend or foe alike. It may be even far easier to accept coming from a friend through the 24-7 news cycles, social media, and streaming movie services being so central in the lives of so many. That's what makes the harmful, discouraging narratives so present on the ears. He says there was a time when marketers at Coca-Cola understood it would take about 14 touches in quotation marks, to get a person to drink a Coke. But Alan Stevo says today that number is higher and a qualitative factor plays a role. The marketplace is flooded with people vying for your attention and trying to influence your thoughts and behavior. He says you're in the midst of a great war for your mind. It is a war for you, your home, and your family. Your enemy knows those can be won by winning the battle by winning on the battlefield of your mind. Some say China is the pivotal front line of our era. Well, the Chinese Communist Party may be part of it, but they're a small player in it. The flesh and blood you are fighting all wave the American flag when convenient. They have their homes on U.S. soil when convenient. They send their kids, if they have kids, to U.S. schools when convenient. But even though these people of influence I mentioned may be mere pawns subject to the spiritual battle. Boom, there it is. It is a spiritual battle first and foremost. Not everybody believes in things spiritual. I can't touch it, see it, taste it, hear it, you know, um, smell it. It's not real. But those who are in touch with spiritual things understand, no, it's all part of a larger spiritual battle. And Alan Stevo says the opponents in this war recognize that it can all be conquered through you. Everyone has a breaking point. Everyone. So this then begs the question, how many touches does it take to discourage you? How many touches does it take to change your mind? How many touches does it take to shift your opinion? What toxins can they inject into discussion to turn your thinking toxic? Now, keep in mind, he says, we're all guilty of this. We're each imperfect. I doubt a single person reading this is without a few moments from time to time in which a news story knocks him back, in which a news story gets in his head, in which a news story gets him to say, even if just for a moment, 
all is lost. Say that and you lose. Say that and you become part of the other team, even if only for a few minutes. That is who you are then fighting for. So if you go around speaking those words to others, you are much, you are that much more fighting on the side of the enemy. He says to win, you need to maintain faith that this will work. Such will get you through thick and thin. This is even more true in this psychological war than it is in a kinetic war. There are people who can fire a gun and kill an enemy from 50 feet. Wow. <laughs> Sometimes that same person cannot look in the eyes of another, per- of another person in a role of presumed authority while telling him what he expects from that person in order to get through his day more enjoyably and more freely. Great valor is shown in times of war. But one must recognize that great valor also happens in daily life. And that valor of daily life is the valor that matters so much. And it's the valor that prevents kinetic war from ever taking place. So when you show that valor, you shift the boundaries of possibility in life and in the world around you. This number one, faith to believe in a virtuous outcome alongside number two, this valor required to walk out this faith are two of the most powerful weapons of our, uh, at a time like this. But Alan Stevo says many people don't treat them as such. Many do not recognize that those who hold these weapons and have the ability to skillfully use them are more valuable than an elite Navy SEAL team. They're more valuable than a high-ranking politician, more valuable than CEOs, bishops, and media stars. And you may be one of those people. We'll come back to his commentary in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just a quick shout-out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. If you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, and Utah's going to be your landing spot, well, if you are looking for a mortgage, get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. Do it without delay. Heather has the stability, the clout, and the experience to get you the loan you need quickly. You can call her at 435-703-4522. You can stop by 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. That's where her office is located. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. And Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So I'm sharing this article from Alan Stevo about separate yourself from those lacking courage. Group yourself with the courageous. Because you know what? It can happen. Mistakes happen all the time. But he says, at such a moment, we look around, we realize that we are rolling in the dust with the enemy exactly where he wants us to be. We pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and ask, number one, what did I do right? Number two, what did I do wrong? And number three, what can I be doing better next time? And then we do it. We grow. We demand more of ourselves. We do better next time. Now, you can be forgiven for mistakes, Alan Stevo says. Just return to the touchstones that get you to that victorious side of this battle. More important than any mistake is your recognition that you are better than that. 
your recognition that you set the trajectory of your life, your recognition that you set the pace for the world around you. Because the truth is you are better than that. If you are a person of valor, you are a one percenter in the world around you. You may or may not be a one percenter in terms of money or a one percenter in terms of global power. You may, however, possess the one percent status that actually matters at a time like this. Under the concept of generational theory, it is, it is in fourth turnings like this one that people once called average end up becoming the subject of textbooks that children study for the next 300 years. I think he's right about this. Alan Stevo asks, do you recognize the gift you have been given to be born in the most powerful country on earth, the freest country on earth, at such a time of, of at a time rather of such global tyranny, and to be able to fight a battle in your own life that can echo out into the world around you with global ramifications for centuries? Because if you did, you might treat yourself differently. If you did, you might weigh your every action more seriously. If you did, you might treat your elite status, your elite tools, your social circle you choose a bit differently. Now, he says, you may be ready for your second-class citizenship status. I'm not. I've been treated like a VIP in virtually every store I've walked into since Corona Communism began. And I've made sure others saw me as one set apart. I've made sure to pick myself up as soon as I realized I was rolling in the dust with the devil. I've made sure that I was not accepting any media narrative. Now, that mostly has meant that I unplug from the narrative and base my understanding of reality on the world around me. And when I need data about the outside world, I seek out some narrative-free quality data sources. You can see why this guy is a kindred spirit. This This is exactly the pattern I'm trying to follow as well. Now, he says many who read these pages do the same. But I don't think many who read these pages recognize they are the elites of society. They are the foundations of the new America. If they realize that about themselves, he says, I think they would much more enjoyably separate themselves out from the people who really are just average. Because the net effect of surrounding yourself with the average is to dull your sword, dull your senses, dull your elite advantage. Far from deserving a response of whining, a person close to you showing his true colors and no longer wanting anything to do with you is a gift that offers you so much benefit as a refining fire, as it clarifies the values of those around you and focuses them into agreement with your own. Alan Stevo says, now more than ever is a time to be in the midst of the iron that can sharpen iron. To be in the midst of those who you barely feel worthy of being around. To be in the midst of the elite of our day as much as possible. And to let them demand high standards of you. For you to demand high standards of them. And for you to elevate each other as you go through daily life. He says it's time to recognize your elite status. It's time to honor that in you. It is a time to separate yourself. Now, I suspect there may be some people who would say, well, now, easy there, that sounds very conceited, like you're setting yourself up to be better than other people. And I understand, that's that's going to be a, that's probably going to be the, the weapon that most people who object to Alan Stevo's stance are going to say, he thinks he's better than us. And like crabs in a bucket, we're going to pull him back in here with us. Everybody has to be miserable. We all have to be miserable. You don't look miserable. You should be... <laughs> 
But I don't think what he's talking about is is necessarily a status-based kind of separation. It's the separation that comes about between people who are willing to live up to their highest values versus those who are willing to compromise away their highest values. Do you see the distinction? Now, if there's a character judgment to be made there, I'm going to leave that to you. But I'd much rather be known by my principles than simply by any other thing. Well, he was so sexy. He had such a such a cheerful smile or, you know, his his club foot just made him so much more relatable. If you want to be known by your principles, you've got to be willing to stand alone from the crowd. And that's hard because we live in a time where it's it's extremely dangerous to stand on your own. <clears throat> there are people who are actively looking for individuals to target. Once they can get somebody separated from the herd, man, they turn the full fury of the mob on that person. So you don't find a lot of sympathy from the crowd. But what I'm suggesting, and I think what Alan Stevo is saying here, is you don't need the crowd's approval. You've never needed their approval. You don't need their permission to live the kind of life that you should be living. If you're living the kind of life to to be a positive influence, to have the right kind of impact on the world around you, you're going to find yourself standing alone quite regularly. And while we treat that as if that's a horrible, scary thing and nobody should ever have to face that, why, why would you even suggest it? I'm going to suggest you to think suggest to you that you think a little more clearly about who has actually provided those turning points throughout world history. Here's a hint. It wasn't the people who just went along to get along. They remain forgotten, part of the faceless masses. It was the people who were willing to stand up for what was true. Can I give you one quick example? Martin Luther, you know, nailing his theses to the to the cathedral door. I mean, he faced very legitimately, he was going to be put to death by the church for doing that. And yet, when he was called before the Diet of Worm to answer for his uh, insubordination, his sedition, no, his insurrection against the church, Sorry, I'm just trying to use the common parlance here. His response was, if you can show me in Scripture where I'm wrong, I will change my tune. But he says, other than that, here I stand. If you can't show me that, here I stand, I can do no more. That's what courage looks like. And you may not have to do something as dramatic as stand up, you know, to the to the empire of a church in order to do to make your stand, but... It's going to come in the little things that you're doing in your day-to-day life. And here's the, here's the best part of all. You will have impact that you have no idea how you're impacting other people. Someone will see your courage. They will catch it. And my prediction is in the halls of eternity, you're going to find out you are a super spreader of courage and virtue. That's a label I would gladly accept. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right, I got some more great stuff to share with you. If you want to subscribe to my show notes, I make this as simple as possible. Go to my webpage, thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll find a subscribe button. And with that subscribe button, just punch in your email. I will not sell your email. I'm not going to be haranguing you all the time with, you know, neat offers and and, uh, lots of doodads to get your attention. But I will send you every morning that I do the show a copy of my show notes, which include links to the articles and the authors that I interview and uh, a chance for you to just take a deeper dive into these subjects if you choose. I'm not insisting you have to. I'm just saying I know the people out there who I know are very serious about uh, learning how the world is and learning what they can do to shape the world in a more positive way. They're the ones who are willing to do that digging. They're not waiting for somebody else to tell them, here's what it all means, honey. Now run along, you know, take a cookie and, and go play. You're not a child. You're a thinking, reasoning adult. And my, uh, my show notes are there to enable reasonable thinking adults to go out there and, and make sense of the world. So, why is courage such a rare thing to encounter today? I actually have a great essay that just landed in my email inbox over the weekend from Paul Rosenberg. It's a terrific explanation of why the West has no backbone. Does that uh, upset anybody? Okay, I didn't want to ruffle feathers, but the reasons, well, look, we've forgotten the reasons why we once valued the virtues that we held. Paul Rosenberg puts it this way. He says the West lost its backbone for a very simple reason. It lost its meta-narrative. In other words, its overarching story for what we believe and do. So the people of the West have no why for what they're doing, save to fill their bellies and beds. Even their greatest dogma, democracy, is an empty shell. Nothing could have made that point better than the past two years when the world was turned upside down by edicts from potentates Precisely the thing democracy was supposed to prevent, while the belly fillers of the West made not a peep. Now, he says the Mongols had a meta-narrative. It was a terribly ugly one, but it organized their energies and efforts, allowing them to overrun most of the known world. So, keep in mind, meta-narratives aren't always nice. The Romans had a meta-narrative, too. Not the best, but definitely not the worst. Early Europe had a grand meta-narrative bringing the world into the light of Christ. By it, they became the first civilization in history to eliminate slavery from an entire continent and to keep it out century after century, among other successes. America also had a wonderful meta-narrative. We were proving to the world that individual liberty was better than servitude. And we went about to prove it, and we did prove it. From where, after all, did railroads, electricity, telephones, radio, the electric light, television, cars, airplanes, and a dozen other wonders arise? Now, sure, several of those had European precursors, because smart and creative people aren't unique to any location. But they rooted and developed in America because that's where they were able to root and develop. Because we had the narrow, I'm sorry, the meta-narrative for it. Now, unfortunately, this is no longer true. American universities teach our children that having a meta-narrative makes them a primitive fool, though they are permitted outrage, which somehow makes them enlightened. 
Whole disciplines are devoted to destroying meta-narratives, half-destroying young minds along with them. There are necessary discussions to be had about the quality and the openness of meta-narratives, but to blindly trash them is almost literally to throw the baby out with the bathwater. These academics are not demonstrating intelligence. They're demonstrating avarice, coupled with arrogance and ultimately with malice. Americans retained a few meta-narratives even into the 1960s. Millions of us were deeply committed to getting mankind into space, and we were doing it until the rug was pulled out from under from out from under us. We also had the hippie movement, regardless of their errors, the hippies, especially the early ones, really were seeking enlightenment and the expansion of consciousness. Unsurprisingly, 18-year-olds took things too far, but the initial drive, he says, at least in his corner of it, was legitimate. The point is that we were doing something big, something grand, something that mattered on the species level, and it's precisely the kind of mission that opens you up, gives you a backbone, makes you truly alive. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, alas, those are lost. Bitcoiners and homeschoolers, people willing to suffer for what they believe, have purpose in their lives. But the mainstream narrative, which millions imbibe via uh, TV and social media, seeks to overwhelm such ideas, drowning out any serious consideration. So he says, I'm going to tell you what, how, how this happened, because I think it will help a certain number of people. If you want references and precision, go to our subscription letter. This is more of a barstool rant, but he says it's not wrong. Here's what happened. Europe was devastated by two world wars. Two consecutive generations of young men were more than decimated. Millions of, of women lost the men in their lives and learned instead to lean on the state. Now, that's a massive generalization, of course, but there's a lot of truth to it. The Enlightenment took a bad turn and threw off a new class of intellectuals who sought, by any means available, to ensconce themselves in positions of power. As always, it bred corruption. The culture of the West has been directly attacked for quite some time. And yes, the Soviets funded a lot of it during their dark reign. One by one, the pillars of Western civilization have been misrepresented, ridiculed, and removed. Money created without cost, fiat currency, has allowed rulers to substantially replace the parents of the West, and especially fathers, who are consistently portrayed as dullards and oafs in popular entertainments. Got a problem? Run to daddy government. They have a program for you. At some point, the free money game will end, but it has made personal virtues irrelevant since 1971. So there you have the crux of it. Paul Rosenberg says, Once we had a meta-narrative, with it we accomplished great things and felt legitimately good about ourselves. Now we don't. And the West has no cohesion, no direction, no reason for excellence, and no pride in itself. Now, again, this is something if you want to research it further, I would encourage you dive deep down that rabbit hole and rabbit hole and go go after the facts. But I do love Paul Rosenberg's approach, and I, I love it all the more because he brings light and knowledge without bringing more anger or fear to the situation. Those are some hard facts to face. But I think they're worth facing. All right, shifting gears. After so many years of the mainstream media poo-pooing the idea of false flags operation, false flag operations is just so much conspiracy theory twaddle. Now they're pushing the idea that Russia is about to launch one. Oh, isn't that something? Caitlin Johnstone explains why this is such a sharp 
pivot from the usual party line and how it proves we can't trust official pronouncements. I wanted to share a couple of excerpts from her on this, uh, on this very uh, subject. She says, in a drastic pivot from the typical denunciation of false flag operations as conspiratorial nonsense that doesn't exist outside the demented imagination of Alex Jones, the U.S. political media class is proclaiming with one voice that Russia is currently orchestrating such an operation to justify an invasion of Ukraine. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters on Friday, as part of its plans, Russia is laying the groundwork to have the option of fabricating a pretext for invasion. We have information that indicates Russia has already prepositioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. Now, Pentagon spokesperson John Kirby told the press on Friday, without getting into too much detail, we do have information that indicates Russia is already working actively to create a pretext for a potential invasion, for a move on Ukraine. In fact, we have information they've prepositioned a group of operatives to conduct what we call a false flag operation, an operation designed to look like an attack on them or their people or Russian-speaking people in Ukraine as an excuse to go in. End quote. Now, Caitlin Johnston says the U.S. government has substantiated these incendiary claims with the usual amount of evidence, by which, of course, I mean Jack Dick nothing balls. The mass media has not been dissuaded from reporting on this issue by the complete absence of any evidence that this Kremlin false flag plot is, in fact, a real thing that actually happened, that their journalistic standards completely satisfied are completely satisfied by the fact that their government instructed them to report it. Countless articles and news segments containing the phrase false flag have been blaring through all the most influential news outlets in the Western world without the slightest hint of skepticism. See, I agree with her. I think that's a pretty big warning sign. This sudden embrace of the idea that governments can stage attacks on their own people to justify their own pre-existing agendas, that's a very sharp pivot from the scoff <laughs> that, uh, that uh, such a notion in mainstream circles has usually produced. She has some great articles to back this up. In fact, she has multiple hyperlinks to show you exactly why. You should be very skeptical of the people who say this could never possibly happen, except it's happening over there because we want to uh, provoke some kind of conflict with them. Keep your wits about you. People are trying to deceive you. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Final segment for today's show. And i got to give some props to the Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, Utah. This is a family-owned business. Started back in 1984. It's only changed hands three times. Teresa and Eric Alsop are the current owners. And if you or anyone you know is in any way involved in sewing, uh, quilting, embroidery, anything like that, this is where you need to go. Let me give you a couple quick reasons. They have all their machines on season-end pricing right now, including some of the hard-to-find machines available for in-store purchases. We're talking names like Brother, Baby Lock, and Genome. And get this, every machine comes with free classes on how to use your machine. And the best part, these classes never expire. 
All those machine classes can be taken again if you forget or if you just want to refresh your course. And, of course, if you need service, they are there to uh, offer free pickup and delivery on your sewing and long-arm machines that need service. They fix what they sell, full service, and, of course, classes to get the most out of your machines and all the supplies that you need. It's the Sewing and Quilting Center. You can find them in St. George, Utah. Go to SewingQuiltingCenter.com for more information. Well, I wanted to touch on the new normal. And one of the things that I have to do to illustrate this, I I don't have the video. Um, I'll see if I can find this and link it in the show notes, but oh, my word. I watched this video yesterday on Twitter, and about 20 minutes after I watched it, it, a good friend tweeted it, or, or actually messaged it to me on another platform and said, hey, have you seen this? And it was the video of crowds out in the public, in the public square in Germany, with police officers walking among them. The police officers are carrying six-foot-long sticks. And, I mean, they look like measuring devices. They're all, you know, carefully, you know, showing this is exactly, you know, six feet apart or whatever it is, two meters, whatever their, their designation is. And these officers are just randomly walking through the crowds of people and just putting the stick in between people and tapping people if they're too close. Now, I don't know, maybe, you know, for someone who, maybe if if you or someone you know has suffered from COVID recently, you're thinking, well, this is a good thing. And it's actually really good that they should, should be right there enforcing those social distancing standards. But somebody pointed out to me, you know, the, the cop standing there holding the stick, he's violating the standards right there just by being in between these two people within three feet of either one of them. But that's not the part that disturbs me. Okay, the hypocrisy I expect. That's, you know, we're supposed to suspend hypocrisy and suspend belief that if the state does something that I would go to jail for, well, somehow it's right because it's being done by the state. All right, I can suspend that for the moment. It's just the image of a policeman wandering around there, oh, so serious, treating the people like cattle. And for me, that's the light that went on was that's really how some of these people in power see us. We are nothing more than cattle. And that's a pretty ugly thing to to have to even consider, much less accept. In fact, I'll go so far as to say, look, if you refuse to accept the new normal as normal, that's not a sign of antisocial thinking. It's actually the duty of each person who retains the power to love what is good and noble. I've got a great article here from Glenn Elmers, published on AmericanGreatness.com, AmGreatness.com. He says, our political situation is so chaotic and strange right now that we can't take anything for granted, including what is normal. So it's often necessary to explain what may seem obvious to readers of American greatness, but is regarded as strange or almost incomprehensible to other people. For example, he says, it's obvious to me and probably to you that today's progressive agenda is actually pushing our country back to a more primitive past. So consider some of the more urgent priorities of woke ideology. Reinstituting reinstituting racial segregation and replacing individual rights with group rights. Yeah, they're definitely doing that. Abandoning poor and minority neighborhoods to lawlessness by defunding the police and decriminalizing many offenses. Eliminating, Eliminating opportunities for women in sports by forcing them to compete against men. 
impoverishing world class or working class American citizens by enriching a global oligarchy while flooding the labor market with illegal aliens. <clears throat> eliminating due process and the rule of law by resurrecting pre-trial detention, extra legal punishment, and the presumption of guilt for political enemies. He says, in each case, this agenda represents a return to a less civilized, even barbaric past. More precisely, it is the return of tyranny, the default political system for most of human history and the constant danger lurking in the shadows of freedom, threatening to overtake those who fail to guard their liberties. He says it took two millennia for Western civilization to implement the revolutionary principles of limited constitutional government, equal natural rights, and the impartial administration of justice. Now those hard-won achievements are being swept away by a fanatical ideology which ironically is convinced of its own moral superiority and devoted to overcoming America's allegedly racist, unjust history. Somehow these bizarre and regressive causes have come to define the left, which not that long ago prided itself on standing for liberalism. Now in some cases, these policies, such as racial segregation, evoke the relatively recent decades of the mid-20th century. But with some, you have to go back to the Middle Ages, or even prior to the dawn of civilization, to find historical precedents. Even the Roman Empire, for example, punished jury tampering with the death penalty for obvious reasons. There's no point in having a trial if the jury can't deliberate honestly and fairly. Yet, as we saw in the recent Kyle Rittenhouse case, public threats against members of the jury were tolerated, even celebrated by our ruling class. And even as evidence grows that the FBI was suspiciously and perhaps illegally involved in the January 6th, quote, insurrection, Many American citizens caught up in the riots have been held in jail for months, sometimes in solitary confinement, awaiting trial, while others are being prosecuted at enormous public expense for such minor infractions as trespassing. Now, if you are sane, these developments are shocking and maybe even a little bit confusing. But if you're under the spell of woke ideology, well, this is all perfectly normal. In fact, if you live in the delusional leftist bubble... What's shocking is that anyone dares to question this regressive and illiberal agenda. The confusion sown among those of us who still dwell in reality is intentional. Psychological warfare is a common tool of tyranny. After all, most people don't want to be slaves, presumably, and so have to be beaten or threatened into submission. Degradation, gaslighting, and arbitrary rules become standard tools of control. What's more surprising, in fact, breathtaking, is how few Americans are being targeted with intimidation and how many have become enthusiastic supporters of this new fanaticism. Now, propaganda, of course, is another great tool of tyrants, but has any despotism in human history ever persuaded so many people so easily to accept doctrines that are obviously irrational, to change their opinions instantaneously and without question, on demand, to deny the evidence of their own eyes, ears, and common sense? And he says, let me add one more item to the list above, which is perhaps the most astonishing example of woke, a successful woke indoctrination. For several centuries, at least since John Stuart Mill, the left has defined itself by its commitment to freedom of speech. This was practically the sine qua non or reason of existence for calling oneself a liberal. Yet for some, yet sometime around 2019 to 2020, in the historical blink of an eye, free speech was simply dismissed. 
it became obligatory on the left to support systematic control of our public discourse by a handful of massive tech companies in cooperation with the government. Liberals moved as if with a single will and became enthusiastic supporters of official censorship implemented by a corporate oligarchy. And yet only a tiny handful of excommunicated intellectuals on the left have dared speak against this great leap backward. Now he has a quote here from Harry Jaffa saying human nature possesses an irreducible, or if you will, an irremedial capacity for resisting domination. We humans will not accept as will not accept an harmonious arrangement of our lives that denies us all freedom to act as individuals. We will not recognize as good any course of action that annihilates our sense of responsibility for our lives. We cannot care for a world, however ostensibly good, in which we cannot recognize ourselves or any whom we love. Now, this does not mean that all tyrannies are destined to fail, at least not in the short term. Nor does it mean that freedom can be maintained without effort or cost. But it does mean that nothing in human life is preordained except perhaps by God, whose will we cannot fathom. So he says, what is ordained is that every human being retains the power to love what is noble and good. Each of us is to live, is free to live well, to speak the truth, and to uphold our moral convictions. That's good advice during these abnormal times. And again, a great commentary from Glenn Elmers. There is a link in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. Click the subscribe button. I'll send you a copy of those show notes every day that I do the program. This is The Brian Hyde Show.